This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs from across the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is a deputy editor position at UKI Media and Events. To apply for this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board on www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Around a year ago, journalism.co.uk reported on a two-year US local news initiative to identify how news organisations could address the biggest issues facing them, from job cuts to revenue gaps. Led by Northwestern University's Medal School of Journalism, together with the Spiegel Research Centre and Night Lab, we're now at the halfway stage of the project. We plan to discuss some of the key trends the initiative has seen so far and what is likely in store for the year ahead. Joining us is Tim Franklin, Associate Dean at Medal. And from Spiegel, we have Executive Director Tom Collinger and Research Director Ed Malthouse. Very excited for this one and thank you all for joining me. Can we go around the room to start with? just touch on what your role encompasses on the initiative, please. Yeah. uh, Hi, Jacob, and thanks for having us. Uh, This is Tim Franklin, and I'm the Senior Associate Dean at the Medill School of uh, Journalism, Media, and Integrated Marketing Communications uh, at Northwestern University, and I'm also the leader of our local news initiative. Hi, uh, Jacob. It's Tom Collinger, and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiegel Research Center, uh, where we've been doing uh, work all around understanding the financial impact of customer engagement for about the last eight years across a range of uh, proprietary studies, but the local news initiative is the one that we are doubling down on right now with the work that we're going to be talking about. My name's Ed Malthouse. Um, I'm the research director of the Spiegel Research Center, and I'm also um, a data science professor here at Medill and Northwestern University, and I've been leading all of the uh, analyses that we've been doing. It's great to meet you all. Uh, I'm looking forward to diving into sort of the the wealth of research that you've been um, sort of doing over the last year. Um, It was about a year ago that journalism.co.uk first looked at the local news initiative. What I'd like to do to start with is kind of uh, rewind to the start of the project, uh, look at kind of the mission goal um, when when uh, the initiative launched. Uh, what what kind of need did you realise in the in the local news space, and what was it that you set out to achieve, please? Sure. Uh, well, I, I came to Medill uh, just a little more than two years ago, uh, and was president of the Pointer Institute, um, which which is a training uh, center for journalists and a think tank uh, down in Florida. Yeah, we know it well. <laughs> yeah, w- absolutely. And uh, and in, in my experience there, um, it became apparent that because of tightening budgets, local news organizations really didn't have the resources to do R uh, and D. And there's also never been maybe in the history of the local news industry, a greater need for research and development than there is right now. Um, and, and so uh, I arrive at Northwestern and, and meet uh, Tom and Ed, who are doing this incredible uh, data research um, at, at the Spiegel Center. Um, and uh, I go to our night lab uh, for digital innovation, uh, which is also based here at Medill. And you see the capacity that we have to do uh, R&D. So, so the, the idea really came from that notion that, that a university like Northwestern and like the Medill School is perhaps better equipped than anyone else uh, to do real data analysis, uh, project development work, uh, and audience understanding for uh, the local news industry at, at what is really a historic, critical time 
uh, for local news and, and I would argue even for democracy uh, in the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong here, you're working with three uh, local news organizations out in the US. Um, can you expand on kind of what that arrangement looks like and how that works and how that's aiding the project? Sure. Uh, and uh, we started at three and we've actually expanded a little bit since then. But, but we wanted to uh, get real world data uh, from news organizations. And then we also wanted to um, to collaborate with them on projects to experiment. So we're partnering with the Chicago Tribune, uh, which is the largest um, news organization in the Midwest uh, here, here in the United States, uh, with the San Francisco Chronicle um, out on the West Coast. Uh, with the Indianapolis Star, uh, which is a, a medium-sized to larger uh, metro market uh, here in the Midwest. And we've also done data analysis with Newsday uh, in, in New York. And since we launched, um, we've also done research with uh, for 12 small markets uh, in the Midwest, uh, primarily in Ohio and Indiana. Right, so right across the board there, all, all sorts of scales and sizes. Ad absolutely. Um, and uh, we're also now about to begin uh, some research for Advanced Local, uh, which is a New York-based um, local media company that, that owns a couple dozen uh, local news organizations around the U.S. So, so, so the work is uh, continuing to grow, but yes, our primary partners have been the Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle, and Indianapolis Star. Mm. You touch on that real-world data, which is a point I really want to pick up on. Uh, one thing I found in a somewhat similar space to you at journalism.co.uk reporting on this sort of news organizations and this in this industry is that it's hard to get your hands on good data from publishers often they only want to put out what they want to put out what's it been like having that kind of access to real world data and what difference has that made to your research and some of the findings that you've been able to come to that's a, that's a great question, and, and it's been extraordinary. And let me tell you, you're absolutely right. It's not been easy. Um, we, you know, we started doing this research about the same time that Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal broke. So there, there was uh, some skepticism, um, I, I think, about data sharing around that time. And of course, media companies, understandably, are very concerned about the security. Of, of their data, but but the data that we're working with is anonymized. Uh, we don't want personally identifiable uh, information from the media companies, and and also I, I think the media companies view us as Switzerland. Um, they view us as neutral players. Um, w there's no profit motive um, on our part. We're we're simply doing this for research purposes to gain new knowledge and to try to help the industry uh, better understand local news audiences. But yeah, you're right, it's, it's been, uh, Jacob, a real challenge to get the data, but, but, but I think they're seeing the value in the research and, and it's becoming easier now uh, to do that. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, build on this with what may be the follow-up question uh, not asked yet, but what, what do we mean by the kind of data? So as it happens, uh, the, the enterprises were, as Tim said, appropriately cautious about data sharing for the obvious uh, and, and important reasons. The other hurdle, it turned out, was the uh, data that we believed was central to what it is that we were going to be asking the data to answer. And that was, what is it that subscribers, as opposed to readers, what are, what are subscribers actually doing? Yeah, so, so what, what's, what Tom's really talking about is, is, is the payment information. So the payment information from subscribers merged with the clickstream data. And so th those, uh, those data sets have lived in different silos of an organization 
and uh, you know, you know, all sorts of issues of, of you know, what is the common key and, and all that, that that have to get resolved. But now, as the awareness across the industry has pointed to the need for growing subscriptions because that's where the revenue will be, it means a completely different and pivotal shift to understanding what subscribers are doing so that that insight can be used to grow and develop people who are willing to pay. You know, we've touched on a lot of um, data findings there. Looking back at all of the data there, is there anything that really stands out in your mind as a key finding, as a key number? Is there anything for you which is kind of a real main finding which, which really encompasses a lot of those points that you, were, that you were reaching? Coming into this, the implicit assumption is that page views is a good thing. Right, we, we want more page views, and the reason for that, that assumption is that the more page views you have, um, the more advertising revenue that you can generate. Um, but what we've been able to do is, is, is look at, um, you know, do page views uh, lead you to want to subscribe or remain a subscriber? And the answer is, not all page views do. All right, so some do, some don't. Um, so, so one of the one of the, the top line findings is the most important uh, predictor of whether you're going to remain a subscriber is um, whether you have a, a reading habit. If you think about other subscription services that you might pay for, like a Spotify or a Netflix, if you're not reading it yep. or listening to it very often, you're probably going to cancel. If you're, if you're driving value from it every day, you're, you're going to remain a subscriber. Um, there are some other um, findings that we found that were a little bit surprising. Some page views actually make you want to churn. So if, you, um, if you're reading a lot of commoditized content in certain markets, so content that you can find anywhere for free, you start to wonder, why am I paying for this? If you're reading a lot of the original local uh, content that you, you can't find anywhere else, that makes you want to continue paying. Okay, so uh, that, that, that's another really um, you know, important finding that not all page views are the same. Some are good, some are bad. Um, another thing that came out of this is you've got to pay attention to the user experience. Okay, so with, um, uh, we, we found that, that people who were using ad blockers um, uh, were, were much less likely to churn than those who weren't using ad blockers. And we have a, uh, you know, a, a hypothesis that people are, are having a bad you know, advertising experience where the computer gets warm or you know, they, they, the cover-up ads uh, are annoying. And you start wondering, well, why am I paying for this uh, if, if, it's, um, you know, if I'm getting beat to death with advertising? Um, part of this is also mobile and also the, the uh, sites that have good mobile apps um, the more you use those, those good apps, the more you want to stay around. If you have a bad app, the more you want to churn. One of the other uh, profound things that is woven into what Ed just said is if the uh, prior assumption, which is a perfectly reasonable assumption that holds generally true in other industries, is that the more time a customer, a consumer is engaged with the brand, with the enterprise, the better right, the more likely it is that they're going to be loyal, not in this yep. case. And that's, yeah, a, that's, that's a really fundamental thing because if we step back and we try to explain what the findings are, it does make sense now when you consider the way in which people are consuming news and information. There's a generation that is now amongst us who like it quickly. They like it in bites. They like it on their time. The very the very insight that's inside of what Ed's talking about really is in line with what we're seeing sort of socioeconomically and demographically, the changes that are happening in the way people are connecting and engaging. And so that creates quite a fundamental 
change in the way in which stories are told as well as which stories are told, you know, on what platforms, at what level of frequency, and so on. And that's, that's where the and so what of this research falls in. So, yeah, I, the, the reason, uh, Jacob, I, I think this is so significant is in, in some of the markets that we looked at, mobile readership is two thirds, even you know, up to three quarters of total readership. Um, which is a, a huge percentage. So if you think about it, you know, you, you're on your phone and you go to a local news site and all of a sudden you start getting pop-up ads and all of a sudden these videos uh, start playing out of nowhere and you're, tr you're fumbling around trying to turn them off. Um, so you can go there for the content that you really went there for um, in, in the first place. And that, that contributes that extra time uh, to, to the point about how not, not all page views and all time spent is necessarily good is actually turning people off, we found, in some markets. And w mm -hmm. without, without going into specifics or proprietary inf information, one, one of the um, news organizations of the 16 we've looked at has a, has a, has a rough mobile app. Um, and we found that, that actually the user experience is so bad th that it's causing people to churn um, in that case. So Ed's absolutely right, uh, and, and Tom, you gotta pay attention to user experience these days. One thing I find, happening a lot in this news and journalism space is that it's very easy to arrive at quite generic conclusions and, and takeaways. It's quite easy to say, oh, you have to be intentional. What exactly does that mean? And, and so how through this have you tried to move the needle and arrive at quite actionable takeaways for or from these, these readers and these outlets? One universal truth that we found, at least with the, with the, with the types of papers that we have is, you know, you, you need to get me into the habit of reading it. Now, what's going to get me into a habit is, is different in Indianapolis than it is in San Francisco. Um, so, so different things matter to uh, the, the indie readers. So, you know, Indy's a huge college basketball town. Um, and so you better have the best coverage around of, um, of, the, of, the, of the Indiana Hoosier basketball team. Um, San Francisco's a, a different animal, but, but, the, but the kind of the, the, the universal truth is find something that, that really matters to those local readers. Find a way to contribute in a meaningful way to their life with, with, with your content. Um, I'll, I'll just mention one other kind of actual finding that, that, that uh, you know, so this follows up on what Tom was saying earlier about not overloading over me. What we've also found is that um, newsletters are a great way uh, to, to drive regularity. So um, if, if you subscribe to a newsletter, you're less likely to uh, cancel. And, and we believe the reason for this is because you're getting in front of me every day and uh, you know, I'm getting value from just reading, uh, reading the headlines and if they're, you're making it very easy for me. And then if, if I want to read the whole story, I can click on the link and, and, and get the whole story. I also want to pick up on the word you use, Jacob, in teeing up the question for Ed when you use the word generic. So the fundamental, one of the other fundamental shifts that is becoming increasingly uh, uh, observable through the analysis we're doing is ex the examples that Ed used. If you know, using the Indianapolis example, if you know that you've got uncommonly uh, 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 loyal and rabid uh, high school basketball audiences, it's not just that you want to keep 
uh, doing that work, you might find other opportunities that are of great interest and value to that audience. Maybe there are yeah. breaking news apps that make that they would be very happy to pay a you know micro payment for. There may be ways of giving them access to things that you wouldn't otherwise think about if you're thinking about well we have to make sure that we're serving all of our readers. So the the additional pivot that uh, is is uh, inside of the things we're talking about in your word generic really is a flashpoint word for it is understanding not just your audience, but understanding your audience says, so that yeah. you can give them not only what it is that's predicting their satisfaction because they keep coming back, but giving them more of what it is that's gonna have value because in Indianapolis, there's that example, but in San Francisco, there's foodies. And the foodies yeah. in San Francisco that we found uh, have a very different affinity to the differentiated foodie, food content that the Chronicle gives when compared to others. Jacob, I want to play off on another important word you used in the question, which is relationships. So, so in the advertising-based business model, which was relying on page views, um, many of the page views that were coming to local news organizations were one and dones. They were people who uh, were coming through Facebook or through Google or through other social channels because an article interested them and they would read the story and then drop, they were done. The world that we're moving into is a world that is based on a news organization's relationship with its readers and building a long-term relationship uh, with, with, with its readers. People wanna feel like they're, they're in a relationship with a local news organization and that they have a positive experience um, with that organization. So uh, as an example, Ed was talking about the importance of newsletters. So the Chicago Tribune, which is in our study, uh, recently launched a newsletter for subscribers only uh, of the Chicago Bears. Uh, the Bears are the big NFL uh, football team here. They haven't been doing so well recently. Um, but but, but uh, they, they are the subject uh, of a lot of conversation nonetheless. So, so the Tribune sort of looked at the situation and said, you know, let's strengthen our ties with subscribers. Let's give them something that only subscribers are going to be able to access. And let's give them inside, in-depth, behind-the-scenes, uh, locker room type information on, on what's going on with the Bears. And that newsletter has a, just a massive open rate um, and has been very popular and I think is strengthening the ties, the relationship between the Tribune and its audience. So that's just one example. There's many great case examples in there, and let me just say that's that's what I call being intentional. A lot of really good examples there of how to apply what you know about your audience into, into quite an effective strategy. Have there been any cases where um, your reporting has really kind of influenced decision-making uh, at other publishers? I think I saw a piece uh, to do with Gannett exactly on this. Is that something you can expand into at all? Sure. Um, uh, Gannett... Um uh, you know, I, I, I think in part or in large part, um, be, because of the reader of the research that we've done, has has created a reader loyalty um, metric um, in, in many of its newsrooms. So, so they have they have smartly realized um, that that uh, digital subscriptions are going to be a big source of revenue for them in the future and an important source, a growingly important source of revenue for them. Um, so, so, so they're now uh, evaluating their readership um, and, and tracking metrics on reader loyalty. Um, and they're spreading that information down through the organizations and through newsrooms uh, to try to reinforce how important 
um, uh, that that particular metric is. So, so that's that's one tangible thing. Um, uh, also, if if you if you look at we talked about newsletters a few minutes ago. Um, all of the all three of the news organizations um, that we've been working with have revised, updated, uh, redesigned their newsletter strategies um, since we started working with them. And I think we see that newsletters are perhaps the single most effective tactic in getting in building that reader habit that Ed uh, was just talking about. It's this friend that shows up in your inbox every morning, um, and if it's curated well. Uh, can get you back uh, to that local news organization's uh, website. Um, and, and it also, you know, a lot of the commodity sort of breaking news content that they're producing is still free, um, which obviously is important because we want to, you know, they want to serve the whole community, not just um, uh, a part of the community. And the Chicago Tribune um, is now beginning to experiment with what it calls a dynamic paywall. So, for example, if, if they know that you live outside Chicago, but you're a Bears fan, to keep the metaphor going, um, th then then they can s they'll send you uh, special offers for access to that particular content. So, so that's kind of another creative way uh, to to grow your your digital subscription base. So, so, so the you know uh, when we started this project. You know, a, l a little more uh, than a, than a year ago, uh, things were looking rough, uh, and they still are um, for many local news organizations. But I have to say, I'm more encouraged now. So every example that Tim just gave could nicely be framed under the category of not all readers are the same, which is fundamental. That's a real big sea change. So for enterprises to first know it then know not generally but quite specifically that this particular segment operates with different interests and behaviors because we have the evidence of it and we can serve them differently to their benefit which is to our benefit that's fundamental that's an enormous change it's not an enormous change in say the e-commerce world where they've been doing that you know on steroids now for a couple of years but it's quite fundamentally different in the news and information business where you think about, well, there are different audiences that have different interests and we can serve them differently in different ways. That's pretty profound and all of Tim's examples really are witness to them now doing that. It sounds like you've inspired a lot of uh, organizations, but let me build on Tom's kind of point there. We've talked a lot about the sea changes. What trends do you really see persisting and what do you do you see any sort of new trends kind of emerging in, in, in the year ahead? We're at the halfway point, looking forward into 2020, a big year for US politics. What might change? What might uh, what might stay the same? You know, the the macro view I, th I think for local news, Jacob, is is um, we're going to see more consolidation um, in the industry in the in the U.S. Um, G Gatehouse appears to be on the verge of completing its um, acquisition of Gannett, um, which would create this behemoth um, in, in local news. Um, so so I, I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, we just had the news that uh, the Salt Lake uh, Tribune uh, has been given approval by the IRS uh, here in the United States to go from a for-profit to a non-profit, you know, that, that could prompt others, especially smaller, privately held. Is, is that not a really seismic thing, that shift? I think, you know, if you think about, say, the five large uh, publishing companies in the U.S., you know, the Gannett's, the Gatehouse's, 
the Tribunes, the McClatchy's, Hearst. Um, these are publicly traded companies with many, many um, uh, subsidiaries uh, in them. And so I, I don't know that the nonprofit route really works for them. But if, if you're looking at privately held smaller companies, especially, or family owned uh, companies in the US, um, I guarantee you that all of those owners and publishers um, are carefully reading uh, the news that, that has just come out uh, about the ability to make the switch from for-profit to non-profit. As far as you've seen, are philanthropic models working in the US? It's something that sort of in the UK we're looking at. What have you seen? As a solution, I mean, to the problems facing um, sort of local news, news outlets. I mean, it, it does open new avenues for sure, um, especially when it comes to seeking philanthropic dollars um, and donor uh, dollars and, and uh, you know, creating things like membership programs uh, to, to try to grow uh, revenue that way. Um, but, uh, and so, yes, it is very significant and I don't want to minimize it. I'm also not sure that it's a magic bullet. No, you seem reticent. Yeah, for, for a lot of news organizations, because, um, you know, Nonprofit, you know, doesn't mean no profit. Um, for, for, for these news organizations, you still have to be a viable, uh, ongoing concern to make it even even as a nonprofit. Um, but but you're absolutely right. I, I I do think that we're going to see more of this. I also think we're going to see more niche content verticals, both at legacy organizations and with new uh, startups. I think we're going to see a push for more AI. Um, and personalized uh, news and information. Ed's really an expert. And then I think we'll see the continued growth and emphasis on mobile storytelling and things like geolocation of news delivery um, by news organizations. Ge geolocation news delivery, what do you mean? You know, I, I've described it as the Pokemon Go for local news. You know, Pokemon Go is, you know, the game where... Yeah, I, I play the game. I know, I know that one. <laughs> you got one. it. Yeah, all right, you got it. I don't need to explain it to you. But, but, but so could you have sort of a Pokemon Go for local news? So you're walking down the street or you're in your car uh, uh, driving somewhere and then up pop um, balloons or pens um, with recent news and information. Uh, or reviews on a restaurant or a museum or things like that. You think you think intentionality could go that far? I don't know, but but, but I, I think there's some experimentation going on um, that is interesting. Yeah, I want to build on what Tim said because um, there's one other thing that is explaining uh, much of, not all of the things that Tim just said, but it really has to do with the prediction of what it is that consumers are going to be doing. And uh, I don't think it's a giant leap of faith to imagine that the way in which they have been trained to experience a very, very personalized and curated world is only going to continue. And so their expectations will continue to, to uh, move toward trusting and valuing those enterprises that help make their lives easier make their lives work for them and the way in which their lives work. And so many of the examples, in, in fact, this last one that Tim just shared is just a perfect expression of the way in which local news enterprises might be able to do just that, which has become increasingly relevant in the way in which people today are being served by other enterprises. So I think it's not a, a giant leap to imagine that the future as it regards consumers' expectation of the experiences that 
the other enterprises are able to help in, uh, enable and, and curate will only continue. The future will be more of that. So the changes that uh, I would predict are so many of the ones that Tim already named that are how they do that. And, and Jacob, I, I, I would just add uh, th that uh, another project the Local News Initiative here uh, has undertaken is, is the is what we call the News Leaders Project uh, Report. And so with, with support from the Cormac Foundation, we went out and interviewed more than 50 CEOs of local media companies um, and national media companies. We interviewed thought leaders, we interviewed scholars, we interviewed heads of journalism organizations, and it was the idea was to put in one place what they, from across these industries, print, digital, broadcast, what they see as the future of local news and, and trends that they see happening. And the, the one sort of cautionary note from all of these interviews were that yep. the, the next three to five years are absolutely pivotal uh, for local news. I mean, there's a palpable sense of urgency. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just appreciating the gravity of what you just said for the next three to five years to be, you know, that kind of decisive in terms of the future for local news. Thinking about the year ahead, if I could, could I get in passing kind of a nutshell from each of you in terms of what is going to make or break local newsrooms and and, and journalists um, as, as they seek to survive in 2020? I would say successfully managing this pivot from an advertising-based business model to a reader revenue-based uh, business mm -hmm. model. Yeah, I'd say um, there is a growing willingness to try very different ways of running these businesses than have been uh, 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 worth trying in the past. I think that the, the narrative that was yesterday's debate in a newsroom mm -hmm. about what to, what to cover and how to cover it is giving way to a willingness to use the information, the data that we're sharing to actually make other decisions. And I think that that's going to just continue and I think continue much more broadly. I, I, I second everything that, that Tom and Tim said, um, but uh, I, I think the um, willingness to uh, experiment and, and try things and measure uh, to know uh, which of these things are working, which aren't, um, uh, you know, is, is going to be really important. Mm. Tim, Tom, Ed, Thank you so much for all of this. I think I've really taken away a sense of just the importance of being intentional in your approach in this era of, you know, an increasingly complex relationship between uh, news readers and news outlets. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me and uh, I'll be keeping a close eye on the rest of the findings uh, in, in the year ahead. Thanks so much. Thanks, of course, to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, be sure to tune in next week as we explore what audience engagement really means and the business case behind it. Before I leave you, it's less than three weeks to go until our News Wired Digital Journalism Conference and you don't want to miss out. This week, we announced Dimitri Shiskin, Chief Content Officer of Culture Trip, as our keynote speaker. Dimitri will talk about his favourite subject, the intersection of product, content and data. Of course, there's loads more on offer, so head over to newswired.com for the full agenda and tickets. The date for that event is the 27th of November at Reuters in London. Save the day and we'll see you there. Last but not least, if you'd like to feature on a future journalism.co.uk podcast, be sure to get in touch with us on Twitter at Journalism News. But that's all from me this week. Until next time. <laughs>